Welcome to the Retail Exchange Podcast. This episode of the interview series is brought to you in association with World Retail Congress. We hope you enjoy this episode. If you'd like to hear more content like this live and in person, join us in Paris, April 16th to 18th. To register now, go to worldretailcongress.com and use code TRE20 for 20% off retailer tickets. Hello, I'm Carl McKeever, and welcome to the interview series on the Retail Exchange podcast. As we bring you insight and opinion from premier retail industry professionals and thought leaders. My guest today is Ian Bailey, CEO of Kmart Group Australia. Alongside me, I'm also delighted to welcome another Ian, Ian McGarrigal, Chair of World Retail Congress, which returns in 2024, with Paris playing host to the premier meeting place for global retailers, an event that Ian Bailey will also be travelling to speak at. With over 450 stores, Kmart is the number one performing general merchandise and apparel retailer in Australia and one of the most trusted and loved brands in Australia and New Zealand. Since joining Kmart in 2006, Ian has been instrumental in re-engineering its purpose, which has seen it shift from a traditional discount store chain to an innovative, modern, hybrid retail model, which is as much about product development as it is about retail. In this episode, we explore the story of Kmart Australia's transformation journey, how it doubled down on clarity of purpose and innovation to develop a strategic blueprint for success, and the importance of effective leadership in empowering the organisation. Here's the episode. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Uh, thank Delighted you very to much. be here. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much to be here. First of all, what is some of the pressures, Ian, about being one of Australia's most loved retail brands? I don't know if pressure is the right word. I think, number one, it's a great privilege to be part of a business which has got such a strong customer following. Uh, I think when you're in the lead, as we are in market share, and if I look through most of our customer stats, we would be the number one. It just means everyone's coming for us. So therefore, you have to improve. And it's always a game of the rate of improvement. We're very conscious we need to be improving at a minimum the same rate as our competitors and ideally faster. And Australia is one of those unique markets where you sit within a sector, I think, known as the DDS, which is the discount department stores. It isn't necessarily something which we see in other places to, to the extent as in Australia. Why do you think DDS is so important to Australian families? You know, it's, I almost think it's a miss, particularly when I go to the UK and I visit. I'm from the UK originally, so obviously I know that market from my youth. And, and I look at our store and we've just got everything that a family needs um, outside of food. And we don't confuse the matter by sticking food in a store. So the net result is we get very high visitation. Most of our customers would visit once a month um, to give you a sense of just how frequent it is. And it means that we can put all of our company's resources on focusing on home, clothing and kids. And uh, I think if you're on a super centre, you know, the big money's in food, inevitably attracts the resources and the other side of the box doesn't get quite the same love. So do you think that clarity of focus and purpose is part of what your secret sauce is? I think it's the secret sauce of any great business. You have to know your customer and you, you then have to get just better at servicing that customer than your competitors do. And if you can do that consistently with a, with a business model that spits out some money, then you've got a really great business. All retail businesses at different forms and in every sector are constantly on a transformation journey, but yours has been pretty remarkable in recent years. Just give us an overview of that, would you please? 
Yeah, sure. So if I go back to like, 2007, 2008, we were like many aging businesses. We were, we were very much in the doldrums. We had about, um, if I do it in pounds, we were roughly two billion pounds in sales at the time in revenue, and we made virtually no profit. And we were on that treadmill of more discounts to try and maintain the sales, and the greater the discount, the more it led to uh, less profit. And of course, we were in that nasty cycle. And then since that point, we really got focused on what really matters to customers. And we, we set ourselves a mission of hitting the lowest price, but without compromise. And that last piece is like so important because we found that, you know what, it generally lowest price came with a caveat, you know, whether it was the store format, the quality of the product, the trend level that was in it. And we found over time that we could deliver on all of those elements. And then we got this incredible customer reaction as a result of that. So essentially, you know, without compromising what you were trying to deliver, you actually turned that around on its head and actually said to people, look, we can be the best that we can be, but we won't necessarily charge you a great deal more for it. Exactly. So now we're 85% is our own brand, which is Anko, which we treat exactly like a brand. It means that we uh, then can then optimize the model all the way from product design through to the customer's hands. And that enables us to constantly extract waste. And that extraction of waste, particularly now with the advent of technology, means that we can hit like unbelievable productivity levels in that process. And, and we, can, we can hit the same product that's going to appear at a specialty store. Generally, we're a third of the price. And we're still a highly profitable retailer. And yours is a brand which, however you do it, you seem to engender a sense of fun. You know, a lot of retailers talk about making the shopping experience enjoyable and happy customers and all the rest of it, but your brand generally does seem to ooze a sense of fun. How do you do that? <laughs> I think, first of all, we, don't, we try not to take ourselves too seriously. You know, Australia is, uh, I guess, a little bit like that, a little bit like the UK. People are happy to, you know, take the mickey out of themselves a little bit. We know we're not brain surgeons, you know, we're not, we're not sending rockets to Mars, we're selling the basic things that people need every day, and we're just trying to make people's lives that little bit better by giving them awesome products at, at low prices. And, you know, when you do that well, it's sort of fun. And one of the things we did sort of to enhance that was to create this mission within our business, almost a religion of lowest price, and the celebration of when we can give that back to customers. And we've probably dropped most of our products would be, if I compared to a decade ago, they'd be 50% cheaper than a, year, than a wow, decade ago. that's amazing. Yeah. And it's that constant improvement over time that the entire team's been doing. And I, and so I you're kind of almost thriving on the challenge of beating your own best. Exactly. Well, first of all, we were trying to compete with others. And then once we got into the lead, of course, that, it was like, uh, you know, with an Olympic reference, we were trying to beat our best time. That feels like a perfect segue for a question from you, Ian. Fascinating. I mean, the transformation strategy that you undertook, what was the timeline on that? And can you share with us what were kind of the the difficult moments? And maybe related to that, you talked about people in the business. How how did you carry the people with you to that sort of finishing line? There's an Olympic um, analogy for you. No, very good question. First of all, I don't think the transformation's ended and I don't think Mm. there is a finishing line going back to the need to consistently improve. That's really interesting. Yeah. So we, we don't see it as a, there is a period of transformation and a period of operation because it's one continuum where we've got to mm. constantly, constantly keep going. If I go back to 2008, the time horizons were short, you know, because if you're in a business that's on the ropes and there's a question of whether you're going to survive, uh, we were the number three player by quite a long way in our market out of three players. And there was a view that there should only be two players in the market. So clearly we were the obvious one to not exist. So time horizons when you're in that phase are very short. And, uh, and that's the challenge because you've got to operate and trade the business, but you've got to make strategic progress. So therefore, we made choices that were fast. 
So what could we do that had fast impact but was still on strategy? And then over time, we could start building in longer pathways to value, which were actually enablers for us to build a much, much stronger business over time. So I feel like as we got on the journey, first of all, the team got on board because we got results. You know, in year one, the team didn't trust us at all, right? And did it help get the team on board, the fact that you were trailing behind? And therefore, there was this incentive to you know, improve on that position. Yeah, it is, and it's an easy it's an easy thing, I think, when you're in that position to make the enemy the competition. Yeah, because, of course, the difficulty on the other side is when you get to the top, complacency can set in, and that's almost a really dangerous time because you've worked so hard to get to that position that then suddenly you can sort of almost sit back a little, and all that hard work to get you there can easily and quickly be lost. No, I agree. When I, when I got into the CEO role in 2016, the biggest thing I changed in messaging was all about customer. Because we were already at that point number one, the only thing that matters then is serving the customer to a higher standard. Because reference to competition is actually reference to group of retailers are not performing to the same level. So, you know, I think one of the analogies we use is no point comparing yourself to your grandmother at tennis. <laughs> Unless your grandmother's really good, I suppose, but uh, in most cases, not so. So, no, so we found that was the, uh, the key to the, to the unlock was to have that. And we've also fostered a discontent within our organization. To a degree, it's actually quite hard sometimes for people to come in because they come in and it's like, I had a great week last week. And we say, yeah, but you missed A, B, C, and D. And if we can solve that next year, we'll be even better. What you were saying there, you know, you're pushing people all the time, but are the teams doing that themselves? Are they saying, yeah, that was good, but how can we do it better? Is that, is that now the culture within the business? That is the culture, and I think it's unique. Well, there may be others around the world, but it, it's, a, it's an unusual thing to have a high-performing business and people are so discontent with performance. But I love it. (laughs) And I think, actually, it's it's obviously a a theme of businesses which have had to work hard to turn themselves around. Stuart Machen, CEO of Marks & Spencer, I think uses the phrase positively dissatisfied, which is a version of what you're talking about there. And I guess, really, that's saying that, you know, look, as good as we are, there's always more we can do, and we should leave no stone unturned in terms of getting there. I guess the question is, how good are you? Like, how do you assess that? What's the benchmark? And in many ways, I think retail fails customers consistently. And I would put us in the same boat. So when we look at our business, we would still think we're like somewhere between a 5 and a 6 out of 10 from what customers really want us to deliver. It just so happens, though, that our competition is below that. So therefore, we're the market leader. But as we sit and look at our business today, we still see so much opportunity for improvement because we know customers want so much more. What are some of the small details that you focused on, things that seem relatively unimportant but but you put some threw some light on them and you made them important but they've turned a positive benefit i think first of all retail is full of laws so uh, I, I guess i was lucky that i didn't join retail until my mid-30s so i i came to retail late in life and so i, I wasn't born with the retail laws built in and uh, so even go back to where we started with lowest price should come without compromise that one of the laws was you have to compromise to hit lowest price and as soon as you have that mindset, of course, it's impossible to solve the question. But if you come in and say, well, why is that? And that, that ability to challenge the status quo. The first thing we had to do at the, at the beginning was change our pricing strategy. So we were running a high-low strategy. And we knew if we wanted to be lowest price, we needed to go to an everyday pricing model. And the wisdom in the market was it can't be done. So then we set ourselves saying, okay, well, the only answer is to do that. So let's forget that it hasn't been done elsewhere. We've just got to find the way. Otherwise, our business is defunct. Right? We, haven't, we don't have a solution. So then we set ourselves a mission of trying to figure that out. The, the first iteration was a disaster. We tried putting a, a range of products in with the banner of always lowest price. 
and uh, they just got lost in the sea of other other products out there. So in the end, we just decided to go cold turkey, and we we literally flicked the switch on our own brand products at the time. Said we're going to go everyday pricing on all of these products, and then we just harnessed everyone in the organisation to figure out how to make it work. So it was a uh, there is no plan B was the cry when we uh, when we made that. Now we, that was either courageous or stupid. Either way, we got away with it. But it was a major breakthrough for us by getting to that pricing position. And of course, in doing so, you also were doing something which was innovating and market leading. Do you, do you know how your competitors viewed your actions? I mean, some people must have thought you were crazy fools for going down this route because it was a, it was a route to certain bankruptcy, perhaps. You know, every, every now and again, you get lucky in life. I think, and we had two pieces of fortune that helped us. The first of all, we were coming out of uh, the GFC, so value was important. So there was a there was a market timing that was was really helpful. The second one was because of the conventional wisdom that if you do this, you'll go broke. Our competitors didn't do anything. So they they, le- they left you to your own devices. They really? gave us they gave us three years. Oh wow. Okay. So that's quite a, a headroom and, for you to, to operate. And you can only imagine. I can just imagine their their dawning realization three years in that they'd actually lost three years and by, by that time we had so much momentum you know there was no there was no catching us unless unless we slowed up ourselves which we didn't do so you mentioned the first iteration of this where you launched a few of your your products and but they were lost within the sea of everything else what gave you the courage to back your hunch and say look we just have to do this it's sort of just basic logic you know if you're trying to say well if you want to be lowest price and if you're selling a brand, you're going to be the same price. If it sort of leaves you, you've got to do your own products. So that was the, you know, that was effectively the extent of the logic. The question is, how do you get there? And what we did was we, we deliberately went after some very big categories. So we looked at men's underwear, as an example, which we were very strong at. The, one of the brands within Australia was 50% of our sales. And our own brand at the time was about 30%. Uh, we exited all the brands in one hit and we said to the to our team we know we're going to have a period where we go backwards but you're going to have to get above the line real really quick and you're going to get resources to support you and being able to do a category like that just showed the organization it could be done this was your test and say okay we'll throw time money investment energy behind this and it paid off I think, yeah, I think if I say what was the secret about what we did, we made decisions and then the testing was how to do it, not whether we should do it. So our mission, we were never going to go backwards to go say, okay, we're going to put the brands back. This was, okay, we have to figure this out because without it, we can't take the next step. And so then it means we're not second guessing should we, shouldn't we. All the mental horsepower of the organization is going into how to and solving that question of how to. And did you move quickly when things weren't going well? That thing about pivoting quickly and learning and not, not pursuing something and giving it another season? Or We were running, we effectively had, you know, myself, my three heads of merch, one for apparel, one for GM and the head of planning. We would meet on a Monday. We would be analysing the results and we'd be adjusting on a weekly basis. So that our cadence of, you know, operation and strategy was like super high because you know we were constantly trying to like understand the data and then figure out what was working what wasn't accelerate what was working and figure out what were the other options for the pieces that that were not so it was a very fast twitch model as we went through those mm. those moments and they were pretty hairy right it's a bit like betting the farm when you make some of those calls mm. and so you know they can be terminal if you get it wrong 
So you just got to be all over it to make sure those those changes work. But if you get it, then you get this big step in performance. And it's like it's uh, it's a bit like climbing a mountain. You hit the ridge, and suddenly you've got a whole new vista ahead of you, where suddenly you realise you've got so much more opportunity. And of course, what you gain at that time as well is momentum, because it gives you the confidence to do more and perhaps to go bolder and further than you had previously. You, you got it, and the belief in the team, which you can't, you know, I can't underestimate the the power of lots of people believing is is unbelievable. The World Retail Congress is the annual meeting for global retail leaders helping shape the future of retail and it returns in 2024 on April the 16th to the 18th. We are delighted to be hosted in Paris, a global centre of extraordinary retail and a prime location in this exciting year. Our theme, High Performance Retail, focuses on the traits needed to be truly world class in today's retail landscape. Join us and the likes of leaders from Carrefour, Sheehan and LVMH in 2024 to explore the path to high performance. Register at worldretailcongress.com and use code TRE20 for 20% off retailer tickets. That is worldretailcongress.com with code TRE20. You can find the link and code in this episode's bio. We hear the term hybrid retail a lot. What does that mean to you, Ian? I don't know if it's hybrid or not. It's you know one of the languages we use recently is pure retail, and it's because we're a product company now. We're a product company and we're a retail business. And if you say where does the greatest value come from, it's sort of hard to say one or the other, particularly in Australia. But effectively, we have a product which we think is now globally ready that can be sold pretty much anywhere. And then we have a retail brand which has a very strong connection with consumers within Australia and New Zealand. So that's why we would call it either hybrid or pure is that we've got this ability to create product all the way from design and then all the way through to the execution into the customer's hands. So in every guest response, I'm listening really hard. And have you just hinted there at some international expansion? (laughs) Yes, no, we've started on that journey. Um, I mean, our market share in Australia is now very high. We're the, the number one in most of the categories that we play in. I think we're now up to about one in five items of clothing sold in Australia is is one of ours. Um, our toy brand, Anko, is the number one toy brand in Australia. And if you take two, three, four, five, and six, they add up to our number one to give you a sense of that leave. Then we're the number one in home. So whilst we still see opportunity in Australia, we're getting big. Um, we've got 30 million people across Australia and New Zealand, which is where our retail stores are. I think there's something like 8 billion people outside of that. <laughs> so there's something to go for. <laughs> so feels like we might be in a smaller pond. And maybe we should get into a slightly bigger one. And within that hybrid retail, online, offline, how, how do you see omnichannel? I mean, despite the fact our average retail price is, uh, is somewhere around five US dollars. So they're pretty low prices and generally low prices and, uh, and e-commerce become a challenging financial outcome. Uh, but we've managed to figure that out. And uh, we've just, so we're very happy for customers to shop, whether it's online or in store. Uh, we have very good store representation within Australia in particular. And a, something like 85% of people are within 10Ks of a Kmart. But, and we've also got a very well-structured shopping environment. So the, um, the planning restrictions or planning laws mean that there's a lot of shopping malls. And, and the malls are generally anchored with supermarkets and us, and they've actually survived pretty well and are still thriving within our market. So that, that helps from that front. Uh, but we do know, though, that customers engage online all the time. And, and it's exactly the same for our customers. So somewhere between 60 and 70% of customers will be checking on their phone before they either transact online or transact in store. So we need to make sure it's a very cohesive and connected um, environment between uh, between the digital and the physical. 
in, in the interview, as we've been discussing together, I think so much of what you've done and, and the way that you've been working with the teams has been about challenging the status quo. But how hard is that, especially when you're working in a business that's got a lot of history and there's conventions in place? You know, sometimes that's the biggest thing to block progress, really, is kind of that mentality, well, it's always worked, so why do we need to change it? It was actually one of the first moves we made, if I go back to, well, all the way back to 2008, was culture. And the reason we went for culture was there'd been a succession of leadership teams who had failed. And so the people who had been in the business a long while had concluded leadership don't know what they're doing and when leadership speak we should ignore them so, so you kind of lost the floor in some ways so it's a bit like being elected but nobody wants you and um, so we we knew we had this passive resistance issue so we, t- we tackled it head on so we went after culture and and we basically gave the culture to the the business so we set up a, a cultural model where the people monitoring culture were actually the team not leadership the leadership had to role model culture but actually the accountability for culture we actually gave to the team so that and we gave them the power to hold all of us to account. And, and the core within that was, of course, is integrity. And, and integrity, of course, is if you say something, you do it. And we gave people the permission to call us out, to call anyone out of any level within the organisation if we weren't living to the values. And, and I'd say that was a massive help at the beginning because it got people speaking and engaging, even if they didn't believe in it or buy into it, at least they'd tell us. And then we could learn from it around, well, okay, we tried it. was tried before a few years ago and it didn't work. This was how it was implemented. And then we could actually then build that into the, the new execution and give ourselves a greater chance of success. Without that cultural move, we never would have known. And we probably would have just repeated the same mistakes. What have you learned from being a leader in not just the transformation strategy, which is challenging enough, but um, everything that's happened in retail in the last four or five years has been pretty challenging, hasn't it? It's, it's astonishing how much you have to learn. My learning curve has been vertical mm. since since I joined Kmart, and, it, and it's not and it's not letting up. You know, the world's changing so fast. You think about what you've got to be good at now as a as a high profile retailer. It's not just about good products, good customer experiences, good prices. You've got to be a great corporate citizen. You've got to man, you've got to have a good relationship with governments. You've got to figure out how to manage um, NGOs. You know, you've got all sorts of other targets to hit that are non-financial, and you've got to be competent on all of that in a in a world that's also shifting towards greater technology and AI. So somehow you've got to be good enough at all of that stuff that you can run a business with all of that going on. It just means you've got to have a capacity and a desire to learn, and and be humble enough to know that there's a lot of stuff you don't get and surround yourself with people that uh, get it better than you do. So I was going to say, it's often said that the CEO is the loneliest job in the business world. I mean, how do you cope with that? Is it about, as you said, having good people around you? It is. I don't, I don't find it lonely, I've got, I've got to say. I think part of it is because I'm in an awesome business and there's a lot of support and I feel, I feel very supported by not just my leadership team but the entire organisation, so I feel like we're in it together. So I think that helps a lot. I've also been working with a lot of my leadership team for you know, over 10 years. So I, I, feel, I feel quite a strong connection to both the business and the people. And whilst I know I've still got to sometimes make, the, make a decision which falls to the CEO, I've, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I feel like people get that that's my job. And at times I've got to do that. And um, I guess I've been there long enough that if I do make a call, they'll respect it and they'll get on with it. You mentioned that you came to retail later in your professional life. What were you doing before and what are some of those greatest lessons which have served you well today? Yeah, I was a career nomad. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> well, I mean, if I, if I really go back, I was, I was a failed professional tennis player between 16 and 18. So that was probably the least profitable part of my career. I then did an engineering degree. I then did accounting after that. So tennis, engineering, accounting, and then I started doing a bit of sales. I did a bit of accounting work. I worked in technology and healthcare primarily. And I just went from job to job, as you can probably tell through here. And whilst that made me almost... The dots don't align terrifically well together, do they? I was pretty much unemployable by about 28, I think. Uh, <laughs> but then all of a sudden, I, hit, you know, I got into a great role with a tech company where I was, uh, I was involved in selling outsourcing of uh, technology. And then they needed a CFO for that business, and they needed somebody with the, who actually got the, the, the business as well as understood a bit of accounting. And then suddenly, by the age of 30, I was a CFO. And then when I, my, my entry point into retail was, was Officeworks within Australia, and they were looking for a, for a CFO who was used to ERP implementations, which, which in my consulting days I'd done two of. So they, they weren't necessarily looking for um, retail skills. They needed, they needed something else, and that, that got me into the game, and then I loved it. I never really looked back. I've, I'd say I've, I love retail as, a, as an industry and couldn't recommend it more to anybody. So in all those other opportunities where you were doing other things, what are some of those priceless moments that have helped you in your role as CEO? You just need different perspectives, I think. You just get given so many things as a CEO, which you don't know how to do. That's the reality. Because if, if the business knows how to do it, it does it. And so the stuff that lands on your desk is the stuff the business doesn't know how to do. So and half the time, it's not that you've got to answer the question. You've got to figure out what the question is and who best to give it to. And you need reference points. And, you know, I think reference points in your history for having worked in different industries to have worked in different types of roles just means you can, you can grasp probably better what's going on. And I certainly think it's helped me as I've gone through my journey that I've, I've, I've had those experiences of implementing tech. So when I'm speaking with my CIO, I don't necessarily understand all the ins and outs of everything that goes on in tech these days because it's so complex. I understand the core principles. And I think that's sort of what you need as you're a CEO these days. You need enough understanding. It's about horizon, really, isn't it? Yeah. And interesting, when you said when you arrived at Officeworks, what was it about retail that you said, this is the place for me? Number one, I, I really love the fact everyone you speak to gets it. You know, if you're, try, if you're selling IT outsourcing agreements, watch people's eyes glaze over at the barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> if you say you work at Kmart, you're going to get feedback one way or the other. <laughs> And especially if you're the CEO, <laughs> Correct. because everybody is going to want something from you. And so, I'd say, so I like that part of it. I'd say the, the piece I really enjoyed, though, is the combination of strategy and execution. Uh, and I worked in 100% strategy businesses, and it's sort of unsatisfying. It's like really intellectually stimulating, but it's a bit like you know eating all the sugar and having nothing really that substantial, and you feel a bit hungry afterwards. And, and equally, if you just work in execution-based businesses, it's a bit of a grind. Uh, I love the combination of the two. Retail is one of these areas where you can plan to do something, execute it, and see an immediate result, good or bad. I agree. I, I agree. It's, uh, so I, I think that's the piece I love the most. And the hardest moment in your life in business, would you say? Uh, the government saying your stores are closing. Right. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that will be one, yeah. <laughs> with, a, with a need to show the share market that our business is more resilient than others in that moment. Uh, that was pretty challenging. Uh, yeah, it was a very difficult time through COVID. We, we actually and we made some very big strategic moves. So I, mean, I, I look after the Kmart business in Australia as well as Target. And the, the Kmart business has been a very strong performer and Target less so. Uh, we've made lots of progress with that business over the last five years. But we made a big call during COVID to convert 
a large number of stores from Target to Kmart, and, uh, which, which has proved to be a very good move financially and has played out really well. But of course, it's like major surgery to two businesses right in the middle of a pandemic when you can't go to the office and you've got to work from home. And Australia had some of the longest lockdowns in the world, particularly, mm-hmm. particularly Melbourne, where our offices are. So, you know, I, I, me and my leadership team and others were spending like 12 hours a day on video calls with relatively soft numbers coming through as well as big strategic change. That was pretty intense. And the final question for me is, when you're not nose to the grindstone and clearly doing all these marvellous things, do you still find time to pick up a racket? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I do. I do. Not as much as I would like, actually. I would like to be playing a little bit more. But no, I'm I'm very fortunate. There's a club near home and they run on a Monday night. So from home on a Monday, they run like a squad from 6 till 7.30 and yeah, run around like crazy, hit a lot of balls. Nobody counts the points, which I really like. <laughs> and, and it's just uh, yeah, it's just a lot of fun. So I still enjoy it. Thank you for a terrific conversation. I've been in conversation with Ian Bailey, CEO of Kmart Australia. Also, my pleasure to be with Ian McGarrigal, Chair of World Retail Congress. And if you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to check in again when we are live from Paris in April this year. Thank you both. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Retail Exchange Podcast brought to you in partnership with the World Retail Congress. If you would like to hear more content like this, live and in person, join us at the World Retail Congress, taking place in Paris, April the 16th to the 18th. To register now, go to worldretailcongress.com and use code TRE20 for 20% off retailer tickets. You've been listening to the Retail Exchange Podcast. Subscribe online at theretailexchange.co.uk and join the debate Hashtag Retail Exchange. Thanks for listening.